0: Hello, everybody. This is Kevin McManus. Welcome to the Real Life Work Podcast. We took a week off for the Easter holiday, but we're back here April 15th, tax day here in the United States. But we want to share some thoughts today with you regarding virtual workshop facilitation. And this is one of those things where 10 years ago, you never would have caught me thinking about talking about this topic. I very much preferred face-to-face training. I did it almost every week. I had bad things to say about virtual training at that time. Of course, things have changed a bit from a technology capability perspective versus 10 years ago. But still, there were people that were starting to spend more and more time using the computer screen as their learning medium versus the classroom as their learning medium. And I cut my teeth, first of all, with group facilitation and then facilitating training events, but it was always in the classroom. And I did not really do any significant virtual training until about three years ago. So I had 400 plus courses, for example, as a taproot instructor that I'd done face to face. I had nothing to compare to relative to virtual. Now I've done about 40 virtual courses with them and about 10 courses with some other folks. And I feel I'm at a place where I can do some comparisons. At least I know what I've had to adjust. And I think if I share that with you, maybe it will help you folks out. Now, I've been lucky in a sense that from a pretty early point in my career, I had very good mentors when it comes to facilitation. Uh, I didn't know anything about it in the first two companies I worked at the first four years of my career, but by the time I got to my third employer where we were actually doing a lot of employee engagement and teamwork, we had people that were trained facilitators that worked at that organization. And then from that point forward, I got involved with the Association for Quality and Participation and the caliber of facilitators at that level, that national level, was even better. And then finally, when I became a Baldry's Examiner and spent 20 years as in the Baldridge process, I mean, this is nothing against my AQP facilitator friends, they're very good, but the Baldridge facilitators, there are some excellent people there that facilitate the Baldridge experience, both from a volunteer perspective and from a NIST staff perspective. So I've had many chances to watch truly good facilitators in action, but again, always in a face-to-face environment did not have near as much of an opportunity to watch them in a virtual environment. Now, from a Baldur's perspective, we did virtual work. We did virtual consensus work on scorebooks. But there was not a lot of screen sharing. We normally had hard copy in front of us. We had our own computer screens in front of us. It's just that the digital capability for data transmission of video just wasn't there yet you know, for the majority of my time as an examiner. Now that's all changed. In the past three years, we've had dramatic changes in transmission speed, video compression software, all different types of things. So there's no excuse anymore for not using the virtual environment. Now it's more of a question of where do we use the virtual environment? And if I had to pick one thing that you take away from this podcast, it would be that Back in the day, way back in the day, we only had one option. Well, we had two options. We had in the classroom or in the field. And so we had to manage that balance in terms of where we delivered our training content. Now, however, it's a very different situation because you can have on-demand training that folks can learn on their own, on their phones even. They don't even have to have a computer. They just have to have some means to get online. But we can have on-demand training that can create awareness we don't necessarily have to use the get-together, the added expense of the face-to-face for awareness creation, but for skill transmission, for skill development, especially skills of a soft skill nature, you know, team building, facilitation, communication skills, conflict resolution, motivation, things of that nature. Learning about those things face-to-face just works so much better. The same with technical skills. There's very few technical skills that you can effectively learn just by watching it on television you can watch it on youtube but you got to go out and practice it so youtube creates the awareness it gives you an inclination as to what the understanding might be but until you actually do the steps of the process and experience the work that true understanding isn't there and then retention of course comes with repetition of doing it the right way we hope So, I'm going to make a little comparison here. I came up with seven different areas. Four of them are based on what I consider to be the four standard roles of a facilitator. And those are engaging your learning audience, using questions effectively, learning to listen effectively to the questions others ask you, to the comments others make, and That's really what we want to be able to do. So let's take a look at how this works here. So let's start off with the whole engagement thing because that's the toughest thing, I think, in a virtual environment because you may lose the faces. It could be for security reasons. It could be for shyness reasons. It could be because they don't want to see, they don't want you to see what else they're working on reasons. I don't worry about it, and I'll tell you why in just a little bit, but I, 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 deliverables are another key tip here, all right? And so if we can get people for certain types of skill transfer to provide us with deliverables that serve as evidence of that skill transfer, we don't have to worry about engagement during content sharing near as much. But engagement is tougher, and that's especially true when folks turn off their screens, because you're, as a trainer, you're getting no feedback. From the class, in terms of how well you're doing, you can't read faces, you can't read, you know, behaviors, you can't look at who might be drifting off, who's working on other stuff. It is a little bit tougher, a lot bit tougher to engage the class in a virtual environment. So please keep that in mind. And on going back to that overarching theme I mentioned a minute ago, I think there's certain things you just cannot teach virtually. Software, however, has that deliverable element to it. It has that progressive learning part to it and so I can have you learn a little bit prove it learn a little bit prove it and that's indirect engagement but at least we've got something going on there now I'm going to suggest that we use questions to help keep people engaged but again it depends on how you're both able to use the questions and want to use the questions Here's the first thing, how well do you know the class? Because often with myself, they don't know me at all. Every once in a while, I have one or two people in the class that have been in a prior class of mine, but in most cases, these folks are new to my classroom experience. So with that in mind, there's no familiarity there. It makes it harder to direct questions at certain people. You don't necessarily know who the experts are, for example as you get into the class you start to get a feel for who you might want to draw out with questions who you might want whose experience you might want to work with relative to the effective use of questions but what i say in a virtual world is always go in prepared know what questions you want to ask to the class to help keep them engaged now even though you might not be getting feedback that they're engaged Just by asking the question, it helps keep their minds engaged. Most of our virtual training software now, our virtual learning environments, have some form of both chat and reactions features. And you can have people respond to polling questions, for example, via the chat. You can have people put documents in the chat. You could ask people to share their screens. You can ask people to use reactions of different types to indicate if they agree with something or neutral on something or disagree with something. But the point is the facilitator has to come in there prepared to use other mechanisms to get the feedback versus just their faces or just the hands going up or things of that nature. So just think about the effective use of questions. Final point on questions. When you throw an open question, a general question to the group in a classroom environment, a face-to-face environment, you can watch to see who wants to respond by their face, by hands going up, by things of that nature, people starting to move versus just sit there. You probably won't have that as much in a virtual environment. So be careful about throwing out the general questions to the group unless you've talked about a protocol for responding to such questions prior at the start of class. And one thing I'm gonna mention here, I'll go ahead and cover it now. When you do a virtual learning event, if you can, if these are folks that you either have contracted with or these are folks that you work with regularly, come up with some ground rules for how we're going to both participate in the training in general but also how we are going to participate in the training from a virtual perspective. And those ground rules become very fundamental in terms of when do we share our screens, when do we not share our screens, how prepared we should be to respond to questions, how well we need to know the reactions features or the chat features. What are the different expectations we're gonna have of each other in terms of exchanging information, given that we don't have those nonverbal aspects of listening to rely back on we don't have that feel of energy that good facilitators can often pick up on in a class so that's probably the biggest downside i think now closely linked to that are the challenges that come with listening in a virtual classroom and i can make it as quiet as i can on my end of things But what I have found is not necessarily the ambient noise or the low signal to noise ratio that causes the listening challenges in a virtual environment. Instead, what I have seen it be more of a challenge of is the latency. In other words, the delay. I ask a question and there's a one to two second delay before they hear it, possibly. And then if they choose to respond, there's also going to be a delay before I hear their response. And so there could be as much as five seconds from when you ask a question to when you get the response back and if you are impatient or if you don't adjust as the facilitator that's going to cause you problems because you're used to a certain pace and when you use questions in a virtual environment you have to adjust that pace and now if you're in an environment where everyone's got 5g everyone's on broadband everyone's got fairly decent hardware and software and you can find that out in your pre-course meeting, then you can treat it as if we're all in the same room. More often with myself, 30% of the class is in the field. They're listening to the class on phones or watching the class on phones or they're working on laptops in truck cabs. They could be in the woods. They may have only audio because of their reduced connectivity those aren't the best learning environments but there are cases where that's all my customer can free folks up for that's the type and nature of the work that they do so give that some thought how does the technology affect the ability to ask questions and the ability to listen and the ability to share feedback via reactions and chat So observation to me is just so important. The trainers that get caught up in reading their slides or reading their script, they never develop that observation skill. Uh, Others have just issues with having their screens on. They have no issues with going to breakout rooms and doing exercises, taking polls, taking tests. They just don't want to be on camera all the time. It's very similar to that. Most people don't like to speak in public. You know, as trainers, that's a little hard for us to understand because we do it all the time. But do realize at least half of your class is not very comfortable with speaking in public, most likely. And so we need to respect that as facilitators. And again, the effective skill demonstration through tests and exercises is what matters. I let them know it makes me feel more comfortable. If some of them leave their screens on, usually some of them will. But decide how you want that to be a class expectation. Determine if that's going to make a challenge or not. Now, a key thing that helps is our breakout groups being able to either share their work or leave their work in a place where the instructor can go and look at it at the end of day. And as long as you have an end of day deliverable, that can be used to assess progress and a relatively quick mechanism for reviewing that progress digitally, virtually, online, you'll be in decent shape. So it's good to have that medium where people can post and you can go and look at what they've posted, you know, that cloud-based environment where you where we can store our work, our classroom work. Uh, you know, that's something I don't have when I teach face-to-face often, you know, either the hotel conference room that we were using is locked up or i was training on site and i've left the property and i can't get back on the property into the classroom to see what's hanging on the wall or what's on people's individual computers and so that element of it is much more an advantage in the virtual environment that my ability to look at the students work as the class as goes on helps me tremendously as an instructor and i i could do it like I said in a face-to-face environment but when you can actually sit there in the quiet take some time look at what they've done make some notes you can give them much better feedback both overall as a group but also specifically to the breakout groups when we get to that point in the exercise one other thing about maybe the self-conscious nature of all this if you have all the screens on and I will say there are certain cultures where I've worked where they want the screens of everybody on all the time and if you're used to a half and half environment or something where half the screens are off half are on that can be a bit unnerving if you're doing a 30 to 40 person class and they all have their screens on it's a very different degree of stimulus coming at you than a five or six face screen but don't worry about it they're not there to learn they're not there to listen to you they're there to learn they're looking at the workbook. They're looking at the screen. They might even be looking at their phone or another computer. It's why the deliverables are so important. People will work on other things. They'll get distracted. They may get pulled away. It happened in the face-to-face classroom as well. Now, think about priorities. You know, Think about the handout content, the screen content, the verbal content you share, and we're not even to our face. So unless your face is a distraction... Screen content matters the most and what we say is more important than how we look as well and again unless our visual appearance is somewhat of a distraction so you don't want that to be the case but if we provide engaging screen content up front back that up with equally engaging audio it's not that hard to keep people tuned in. Now certain people have certain preferences. Some people, you can give them a video with visual content and audio content, and they'll just listen to the audio. That's their preference. They'll maybe go back and thumb through the visuals later. That's just the way they like to listen. Others are the other way around. They'll maybe look at the visuals, and they'll go back and check out the audio later to fill in the blanks. But that's getting to know the learning styles of your student. Remember, visual, auditory, kinesthetic. People have preferences in terms of how they receive information. Serial and parallel, people have two different ways to process information once they do receive it. So the facilitated breakout room use becomes critical, becomes at least a third of the class or more. And That was my biggest takeaway when I became a Baldrige examiner. I I knew that you were supposed to keep people engaged in training. I knew that you were supposed to have exercises. But when I actually saw the way time was allocated in examiner training to where only 10 to 15 minutes per hour was spent on lecture, the remainder was spent on either small group work or large group dialogue, it creates a tremendously more effective learning environment. And so it sounds simple, but what should your pie chart of work time distribution be as a standard for training environments? And very rarely, unless we're just doing something to dot the I's and cross the T's, you know, compliance-based training. Yes, I did look at it. Yes, I did review it. No, I didn't see anything that needs to be changed. You know, if we're doing that type of thing, That can be mostly lecture or mostly video stream. But if we're going to take the time to do the face-to-face work, let's make the face-to-face encounter value added. Let's amp that up. Let's plus that up. So 10 to 15 minutes per hour, 25% at the most out of each hour spent on the lecture. And then we reinforce that amplify that through the exercises and then the debrief of the exercises. And that's another key challenge for facilitators, either either face-to-face or virtually. Can you facilitate large group dialogue? What's gonna be our pecking order process example? You know, you have four people that want to contribute. How do you determine what order to take their questions in? How do you keep track of who asked what? How do you make sure that everyone feels validated? when they share their information. These are all things facilitators have to keep track of. So the smaller group dialogue tends to work better and I prefer to have most of my dialogue type discussion in the breakout rooms and then I just have to repeat myself a little bit more. But recognize that breakout room time is not break time for the facilitator. Instead, they're going to be busy with room checks. We're gauging where we're at timeline-wise. You don't have to hover over the group. You know your timelines. Know your markers. Know where they should be at certain points of time. Know what to look for in terms of common challenges, common indicators that you, they are getting your information. Only interrupt their flow if they ask for help. Or if you can see them about to go past a point of no recovery. And as you do this observing, you know, think facilitator training, you know, with the classic facilitator training, like I talk about in my facilitating and leading teams workbook was where the facilitator goes in the room, sits in the corner and observes. And then they give the team leader feedback after the meeting in terms of practice, strengths and weaknesses they saw, and maybe what could be adjusted or improved on so clearly defined expectations up front have clear deliverables they don't have to be complex deliverables could simply be a list of five expectations or a prioritized list of next steps but it shows that they were listening and by the content type it will let you know if they get the nature of what you're sharing do they understand but you want clear expectations and deliverables for both exercises and then the class as the whole and then the exercise expectations tend to roll up into the class expectations try to provide examples if you can the chat provides a way to do that you know what level of quality do you want what level of thoroughness do you expect please let them know you're going to be doing between class reviews That tends to keep people on task better, it tends to drive up quality of work. The use of progressive exercises, that helps drive engagement, helps drive skill retention. And so when you're checking work, if you're doing a multi-day course, you could check at lunch, you could check at the end of the day. It's your job as the trainer to make sure people are progressing. There should never be a case where a virtual course is easier than a face-to-face course. It's just your tasks are different. You're spending your time differently as the trainer, as the facilitator. But there are natural checkpoints that you're going to have, and that's what you want to learn, and then you see how well groups progress towards those. How well are the essential competencies of the, cor- of the training of the course being retained and being applied? Recognize that I can work with all three mediums. I can use exercises to engage people kinesthetically. I can have them draw things or write things. I can have them verbally contribute. But it is much easier for me to share content and for them to share content than it often is in class. In class, if I wanted to to distribute a two or three page handout, I'd have to go around the class or have the class pass the handouts around. It's much easier to put a PDF in the chat and just have people pull that into their desktop and take a look at it. Plus, I honestly think there are times when people can more easily see the information on the screen than they could read it on the wall. And so some of your visuals are often easier to see on a computer screen than they would be in a classroom on a slide on the wall. So take advantage of technology. Use video and animation to help create memories, retention, but don't go overboard. It's just as important to keep your software and hardware up to date, know how to switch between screens easily, know how to use the notation features in the software, the sharing features, the setting features, and just practice it on your own without the class so it's nice and smooth when you do get the class together. Well, we've reached it to the end of our tips. We've got one more tip. And I'm gonna run back through those real quick and then we'll look at our seventh tip, which is flexibility. Virtual workshop facilitation requires flexibility in so many ways. So in looking at where we've been, effective questioning makes the difference in a virtual learning space just as it does in a face-to-face learning space. And these are more often open-ended questions. Tell me more about, describe, Can you remember? Tell me how. So try to keep the group engaged through questions. Just asking questions helps keep the brain engaged. But be flexible with your questions. Have a question set that you can go to based on the situation. If the connectivity is weaker than average, you may go to a different question set or a different exercise set. As I mentioned earlier, listening is gonna vary with connectivity, with group size, with type of organization. So be flexible and ready to listen in different ways. Think about observing. Do you know the people or not? Are they gonna have their screens on or not? Can I observe through their exercise work, through polls, through tests, through reactions, through information they share in the chat? What's the culture relative to sharing information, sharing screens? And then do the people in the breakout groups know the basics of how to share screens themselves so that they can be effective in their breakout rooms? Be flexible in how you use the breakout rooms. Be flexible in your deliverables and your content sharing. Try to meet the needs of the group. Try to make the course value added. That's why we're there. And so you're going to have outages also. Be prepared for tech outages, hardware outages, software outages. I've taught a course on generator a time or two. They happen. But look for ways to consistently improve your connectivity over time. If you provide virtual instruction, you should be making annual upgrades, if not more regular upgrades than that, because with Moore's Law, memory density and processing speed are doubling every 18 months. And we're up to some pretty big numbers now in terms of how much content you can get in a small amount of space, or how much content you can send across the transmission lines, wireless or not. And that's gonna double again in 18 months. And so I've learned tons about you know just wire size. And wire quality keeping your software up to date keeping your software in good shape keeping your computers up to date you know it's not just having fast internet your computer has to be able to process the fast internet it has to be able to carry the content from your hub to your machine lots of different options out there now and that's going to continue to shift especially over the next three to five years now the positive side is as Moore's Law continues to get to give us more technological capability, there's going to be a lot we can do with content design and delivery. But we have to make sure that whatever we create, whatever we share, results in full class engagement. That's the primary goal and biggest challenge. And when I say full class engagement, I don't mean everyone's paying attention. We're engaging the primary learning styles of each person in the class. And so how can we use both classical facilitation approaches, observing, engaging, listening, questioning, coupled with better technology, three dimensions, more animation, more sharing of content, more simulation, how can we put all that together? And then tailor it to the course and to the individual and to the time demands, especially of the organization, the team, and the person, to give folks what they need to continue to develop. You know, training time is a limited commodity, like all improvement time in organizations. There's required training we have to conduct. The best organizations, for example, the top manufacturers in industry weeks, best plants. Process 60 hours of training per year per person. Some of that safety training, some of that's quality training, some of that's team skills training, some of that's personal development within their area of expertise within the organization, within their certification process. But that's 60 hours. That's a good amount of time. If we're going to make that investment, how are we going to use it effectively? And to go forward... Don't see the classroom as the primary learning medium. See it as a mix between classroom, virtual, and in the field. And I still focus for in the field first. Tech as the backup. They can always go to the content if they need a refresher, just like YouTube. And then for soft skills in particular or where we're trying to build engagement levels, we're trying to build teamwork levels, we're trying to build relationships in the organization, get face-to-face if you can. Because that's the best way to create the energy, to create the positive feelings, to get that momentum going towards true total team engagement and proactive high performance. So you can find these tips summarized on my Great Systems website. It'll be both summarized as a podcast and as a post. I want to thank you folks for listening to the Real Life Work podcast with me, Kevin McManus. Also keep in mind that I have my own courses that I teach through the Great Systems Kaizen Learning Universe and I teach those virtually and face-to-face. Virtual is the preference, so I can avoid travel, but I am flexible if you're the customer. And then I do also still teach Taproot, root cause analysis courses, three-day virtual courses. I think they are very great ways to learn the Taproot process. I think it's the type of process that you can teach virtually very well because it does have that progressive set of expectations, learning expectations, as you progress through the three days. So if you're interested in that workshop, please drop me a line, drop me a message through LinkedIn, just connect with me through LinkedIn to keep in touch with what's going on, drop by the Great Systems website every once in a while, and check out the Taproot website to find out more about their virtual course been a pleasure sharing these 32 plus minutes with you today on the podcast if you ever have any ideas feel free to share them with me it's kevin at dot or you can check connect with kevin mcmanus on linkedin have a great day and most importantly keep improving